Welcome back to another episode of Dentistry's Growing with Grace podcast. Join Grace and her guest of the week as they discuss lessons learned in the industry and explore unique insights into ethical growth. Hi, and welcome back to Dentistry's Growing with Grace. I'm very excited to have my friend Chuck Blakeman here with me today. Um, Chuck, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you, Grace. Glad to uh, be here uh, on your show, even though I can't be with you in Chicago. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, um, tell us a little bit about, about what you do and, and how you got to this point. Yeah, well, I'm uh, interestingly enough, I'm not a tr- I, I didn't grow up in business. I did not take business in college. I went to music school to be a classical musician and on clarinet and, and uh, worked in that vein for a while. And, and uh, my sister went on to do that as a profession. She played in the, in the uh, San Francisco Symphony. But I'm, I'm just a, I got into music a little bit and then started to, to grow a business. I barely got out of high school. I was uh, graduated near the bottom of my high school class. Turns out they didn't know these things back then. I'm ADHD, dyslexic, left-handed, right-brained. The only part they knew back then was left-handed, and they didn't like that either. <laughs> so I really thought I was stupid, and so did they. And they had me in the principal's office the last day of school deciding whether they would allow me to graduate or not. I think the consensus was, if we don't let him graduate, we're going to have him around another year. Let's get him the heck out of here. So, <laughs> so, and then I got a full scholarship to music school, but they wouldn't let me come because my grades were so bad. So I had to go to summer school and, and college for a summer on my own dime to prove I could actually do the work. And off we went. And, when I, and then I joined the Army because I, I thought, well, they're the only ones who would, who would hire me because I'm stupid. And when I got into the Army, I, I started a business. I just had this little thing I started. And, well, maybe I got something to offer. I started another one. By the time I got out of the Army, I'd already had three businesses. And, and uh, 30, 40 years later, I've bu- I built now 13 businesses in eight industries on four continents. And, wow. uh, and, and, and found out that ADHD, uh, over, 88, over 80 plus percent of entrepreneurs have ADHD. I have a very mild case of it. But, so apparently it's a gift. I probably need to take a test for that. It sounds like I may a, not know something take a test about for myself what? for take ADHD. A test for, no, I'm just kidding. See, that's the that's the test for ADHD. I'm sorry, I was distracted. <laughs> Squirrel. <laughs> so, um, so you're the true definition of an entrepreneur. Yeah, to me, there's two kinds. There's business owners. Bill Gates is a business owner. Bill Gates started one business and stuck with it. Really good at it. Uh, Richard Branson is a is a uh, entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs get dive into stuff they know nothing about. And most of my businesses, I had no clue. So my, my mantra in life, my question is, why do what others can and will do when there's so much to be done that others can't or won't do? So I'm just you know, always stepping into the gaps that way. That's an entrepreneurial mindset is to step into the gaps, not do something you know. Mm-hmm. I love it. So I've got a few questions here to ask yeah. you. I don't know what all of them mean, which <laughs> I think means I'm going to learn something today. And I'm excited. So let's just hop right in. Sure. Um, what is a participation age company? It's a great question. It's, uh, it's what came after the industrial age. I think we, we have too many ages and too often we break them down. We got the, the information age and the technology age and the customer service age and all that. Uh, all of that stuff is named after stuff. Most of it, the bronze age, the stone age, the industrial age, it's all named after stuff. People never seem to get an age. And I think this is the age of people. And it really started in the, in the late 70s, starting into the 80s. Uh, got kicked, got really going in the 90s. The industrial age was about stuff and about production. The participation age is about how people 
how that impacts people and how they impact it. So there's two hallmarks of the participation age, participation and sharing. People want to participate in building a great company, not for you, but with you. And they want to share in the rewards. So it's the idea that everybody should become a capitalist. Why not put everybody in a place where they have incentives to actually use their brains? And if they do, they make more money, they make more time, they have the same benefits to a lesser degree than the owner. So hallmarks are participation and sharing. Interesting. Okay. Um, and I would imagine not all companies who started in a participant age are participation companies. I would say that 90 plus percent of companies out there in America today are industrial age companies. Mm-hmm. 95, probably closer to 95% are. They think they're in the participation age. It's all about people and service. Now, you, you know, and you look at it, Gracie, most companies, you can see this better in manufacturing. In manufacturing, we, they don't have smokestacks and, and assembly lines anymore. We ship that all overseas. Now they have clean rooms and digital technology. We think we left the industrial age. But if you look at the front, front office, you compare a front office from 1903 to a front office in, in 2020, they look identical. It's a bunch of guys in ties making decisions for everybody else. Google is one of the most backward industrial age organizations I've ever been in in my life. I was on my heels the whole time I worked with them. I could not believe how backward they were in terms of their front office. They, they don't participate. They don't get people to participate. They don't share. It's all about telling people what to do, changing people's career paths without even telling them. It's, it's a bizarrely horrible culture. And that's just a great example of, of why, what we think we've got this whole idea of culture upside down. Google doesn't have culture. They have perks. Mm-hmm. Blue jeans, Fridays where you can do what you want, free, free uh, Coca-Cola. Uh, those are perks. But you, well, I think, I, think culture, I think culture always exists. It just might not be yeah, a very good culture. Right. right? Have, like I always have a, have a diet, but that's it may right. not be a very healthy diet. Right. Exactly right. So you're, 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 that's a good correction. They do have a culture. It's a very bad culture. It's an industrial age uh, ups, uh, pyramid scheme, which pyramid schemes are built to use the people at the bottom for the benefit of, of the people at the top. And that's most companies in America. They are still industrial age pyramid schemes. Interesting. Well, I'm excited to learn more from you. Um, so how would someone stop managing and become more of a leader instead? Well, first, yeah, first thing they have to believe that that actually makes sense. Here's an interesting thing. I'm going to do a TED talk on this. I'm going to force this one. I've already done one TED talk, but this one needs to be out there. I asked the question, I went on to Google and I asked this question, do managers make people more productive? That seems like a reasonable question because from my understanding, there's only one reason that managers exist. And that is that the eight people could not exist without, could not perform without that person or they would not perform as well. The manager adds enough value to pay their own salary and add enough more profit to justify their existence. So the assumption that we've been running with uh, since we started companies in the industrial age was managers make people more productive. I challenge you to find a study that actually proves that. I went out and asked that question. I got 2 million responses and the 2 million responses were largely uh, managers are horribly over uh, over uh, uh, used. They're, they're, they have way too much on their plate. They don't. They can't do what they're supposed to do. Here's 27 ways to fix them, but nobody actually looks at the thing and say, "Are they actually supposed to be there? Do they make people more productive?" 
Here's the other side of the coin. I can show you 100 companies with up to 75,000 people that do not have a single manager in the whole place for up to 60 plus years. And they all live at the top of their industries and professions. And I can show you thousands of smaller ones that have no managers anywhere in. And those companies, the people are much more productive. So we've got a case study that says, so we got to start there to believe that the military model we, we got from the military doesn't make sense in business. So how do you, how, so the obvious question from that, Grayson, is how do you, what do you do then? Uh, Google in, in 2004 uh, declared the end of all managers. They were on this kick. Three months later, they reeled it all back in and said, no, 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 we made a mistake. Managers are actually necessary. Well, it's because they did the wrong thing. You don't create a participation aged uh, company by taking something away. You don't do anything by taking something away. The worst of human conditions is uncertainty. You know this in marketing. And the worst of human conditions, it's, it's why people hate being a hostage. It's why this COVID thing has been so hard on people because there's too much we don't know. So if you say it's the end of all managers, then people say, well, well, then what, well now what do we do? You just created a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Now you create chaos and anarchy. So the way to do this is instead of getting rid of managers, you begin to implement the idea of team decision-making, distributed, what we call distributed decision-making teams, DDM teams. And we begin to make a list of the things that the manager is actually deciding that the team could actually decide better and begin to put those on them. We have 12 tools of distributed decision-making that will allow, allow a company to transform over six months to 18 months from a top-down management uh, thing to a, a team-led uh, environment. And the most managers get on board with it because they realize, hey, this is really better. I don't have to manage. I can do other things. So let me ask you a question. Yeah. And you're not expecting this one. Um, <laughs> From you, I might. Okay. So in, I'm going to just challenge this a little bit. I love it, by the way. Um, with this philosophy of leaders instead of managers and team-led decision-making, which I love, how do you have accountability without managers? That's great. Well, that's, it's, it's one of the, uh, it is the main function of leadership. There are three things a leader should do. And I'll start by saying this, leadership and management are entirely different things. They have nothing in common. And I've got professors at Harvard who agree with me. Nothing in common. Management is something we do to people because we think they're stupid and lazy. Leadership is something we do for people because we know they're smart and motivated. And, we just, and they just need a little guidance. They need a little uh, structure to help them get going. It's three things that, man, that leaders need to do. Guard the values. That's the culture piece. Vision, values, mission. Number two is champion the people. Train, mentor, create resources, put the right people on teams, and then get the blankety blank out of the way. That's one of the best ways you can champion people. And the third one is pilot the results. Most managers are piloting the process to the point where they don't even care about the results. As long as you do the right process, you've heard that before, managers do the things right and, and leaders do the right thing. So pilot the results. So fundamental to a participation age company is results. And I would say that every participation age company out there, including ours, is much more results driven than any managed company out there. So number one, you have to have metrics. Everything is results based. And every team has metrics. If you do this, then, then this is what's supposed to happen. And if that's what happens, then you get this incentive. And if you don't do that, you get this disincentive. It's all metrics driven. 
And then the leaders look at those results. And if they don't like the results, the strategic leaders go to the team and say, hey, you guys aren't getting the result you agreed on. What, you, what should you do to change your processes to get that result? I'm not going to do that. I'll partner with you. I'll help you. But I'm not going to tell you what to do because that's what managers do. So, so it's very metrics driven, process driven. We have every team develop what we call freedom maps to free every person into the highest and best use of their time. But every single uh, step on that map is owned by an individual. I guarantee you that doesn't happen in 99% of, of managed companies in America. You ask who owns the process, it's going to be the manager. You ask the team what the process is, you, they're going to say, go ask the manager. So I've, I've found, so I am, based on your definition, I am without a doubt a leader. But <laughs> when I get someone who shouldn't be on my team, I become a manager. Yeah. So if I try to keep someone who really doesn't possess the core values or really doesn't, isn't there for the right reasons, I find myself adjusting from leader to manager. Yeah. And we call that a psychological problem. <laughs> and what I mean by that is this. Thanks. <laughs> no, I mean, you just have to free yourself from that. That is, that's unhealthy. Right, right. And the way we do it, we, we say, what is management? Let's define management. Well, here it is. If we define management as what it was, we'd never do it. So I'll give you this to help you get away from that. Because I'm sure you get sick of it and then you, you, you move that person along. But I do the same thing. I try and help people in a way that I shouldn't. Here's the, here's the definition of codependence. And let's think of manager. As we think of the definition, I got this right out of the dictionary. Definition of codependence, doing for others what they could or should do for themselves. Welcome to management. Management is nothing less and nothing more than pure, unadulterated codependence. I need somebody to tell what to do. Well, that's convenient because I would like to be told what to do. I don't want any responsibility. Yeah. Welcome to codependence. It is unhealthy. And, and now you have a stupid and lazy person who wasn't stupid and lazy to begin with, but you made them stupid and lazy because they realized if they made a decision, they'd get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, so I totally get it. I do the same thing, Grace. And then I have to wake myself up or somebody on the team wakes somebody else up and says, dude, you're just, you're doing for others what they could or should do for themselves. If they can't do this, then train them. And if you yeah, can't train it, it, them, then get me, somebody else. Yeah. For me, it's what happens as I'm, as I'm realizing someone's not a fit. And I, I think it's going to be even, it's going to be easier for me to realize this in the future because when I find myself managing, I'm going to know that there either needs to be some difficult conversations or some change or some things that, that change because it's not even fun to be a manager. No, It's no, exhausting. It's it's not. Leadership is fun. Management is totally exhausting. And, and my next book, Rehumanizing the Workplace, which will come out, it's, the launch is September 24th. I've got a chapter in there on this stuff and why you, why you shouldn't manage people and what motivates us not to. One is it's, one is it's, it's, uh, it's demotivating and it's exhausting. But here's a better reason. What does it communicate to everybody else in your, in your company if you are spending all that time and energy on that one person? Mm-hmm. All kinds of things. Like, well, apparently it's okay to not perform well because right. they're, still, they're still here. So I don't have to perform as well. And uh, Grace seems to like those people more than, they, than she likes her performers because she spends more time with them. So, you know, maybe I'll not perform or, you know, I just get bitter or I quit. Or, I mean, there's just so many things that you basically, I've, I've had to tell dentists, 
you don't love the other eight people on your team because you spend all your time with that one codependent person. You just have to face it. You don't love those people. Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, it goes along with what you said when you were defining a leader and what the, the roles of a leader, you know, what it is, guard the values, champion the people, um, pilot the results. It, it goes along with that. If, if you're doing those things correctly, then you're not going to get pushed into that, those management habits. Exactly. Yeah. And that's your, that's your metric for, that's your, your true north for this. Okay. Am I piloting process or am I piloting results? Oh, oh I just fell back into piloting process. I'm telling people what to do. Uh, so there's, you know, am I guarding the values or am I guarding the, the, the people from that bad person or that person who doesn't have our values? Too often you've been in this situation. I know as in the two times I worked for somebody else, I'd go into the manager's office and say, hey, look, there's 10 of us out there. Three of us are killing it. Four doing okay. And there's two people, three people who are just uh, along for the ride. And they say, well, too bad. One's my uncle, one's my girlfriend, and the other one's funny. So you're just going to have to put up with them. So they're, you know, they're guarding the people. They're not guarding the values. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you get into those three things and that'll help. Before I forget, let me say this. Here's the simplest way to say, to, to practice the difference between being a manager and a, and a leader. Very practical. Here it is. Managers tell, leaders ask. Managers tell, leaders ask. Asking is a, for, is a form of training. So tell me, how, what, how, what do you think the process should look like? Why do you think it should look like that? That's all how I do, do, all day. How, all do you day. Think it, how do you think that's going to impact the rest of the company? Have you thought about the profitability? Ask questions, but managers will go in and say, here's the process, here's the profitability, and then they wonder why nobody owns it. Or why they're burnt out. Yeah. Why they're, yeah, because they're making all the decisions, it's all on them. So yeah. managers tell, leaders ask. Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter and Square, says, when I am making decisions, I am not leading. Mm -hmm. So I, one of the things we have people memorize in terms of leadership is this. The art of leadership is to know how few decisions the leader needs to make. It should be a rabid obsession of the leader to constantly be thinking, should I be making this decision? There are some. Like mm -hmm. one of the decisions I've made is we will all be adults. <laughs> Nobody's going to take that decision away from me. If you decide you want us to not be adults, you will probably not be here. I'm making and keeping that decision. Mm -hmm. But boy, there's darn few that I'm keeping. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I know all too well what that means. Um, and I think any business owner knows what you mean by that, oh, yeah. which, is, which is fun. Um, it's I've like pornography. You know it when you see it. <laughs> so why should, we, why should we have stakeholders instead of employees? Yeah. Yeah, it's, this, it's along the same lines. We should, we should not have managers and we should not have employees. My second book was why, why Employees Are Always a Bad Idea. And it was really going to, originally it was called Why Managers Are Always a Bad Idea. But it's the same thing. Employees, over the years, coming out of the factory system, top-down pyramid scheme, they've been taught to not make decisions. In fact, you get in trouble for doing so. And, you know, we don't want people making decisions in a vacuum, but if you make them as teams in cooperation with the strategic leadership, nobody's going to get in trouble. But we teach them, it's my job. The manager justifies their existence by being smarter, more motivated, and having more knowledge to make decisions. And that's where uh, Scott, Al Scott Adams made his millions of dollars with Dilbert. Because we all know that the manager is no smarter than we are, but we somehow have to give them our idea in a way that they think it's theirs. Then they come up with it. Then we say, that's awesome. Great idea. Thanks for coming up with that. So employees have been taught to be stupid and lazy. 
Uh, I, it's I true. That. Yeah. We think people are stupid and lazy. There's a submarine captain who turned a sub around in one year, the worst rated submarine in the entire U.S. Navy, made it the best in one year. And he did it with the same 134 people that had made it the worst. And he did it by distributed decision making. He went to them and said, okay, I'm not going to tell you what to do anymore because commanders just tell leaders ask. I'm going to ask you, what are you going to do? What do you think should be the right thing for the torpedo room? And, the, and in one year on that one simple thing, he turned the whole thing around and he found out the 134 people who were stupid and lazy for three years all of a sudden became smart and motivated. It's awesome. And it makes perfect sense. It's human. Uh, yeah, it makes perfect sense. And it's funny because you can see, even if someone hasn't had, because I've, I've had a few entry-level people that come in and maybe they haven't really had any career experience before. No. And it's fun to see how uncomfortable people are making decisions for themselves, even just coming out of college, yes. like that system. They're used to having such careful details and steps to follow and criteria that, that people are so uncomfortable just thinking and, and solving and being creative on their own, but they're very capable. Do you know who, who, only, who are the only human beings that naturally ask questions as a regular way of life? Three-year-olds. And by the time they get to high school, we've beat it out of them. And college, the word educate is, is actually uh, the, the uh, Latin for that means to draw out. We're not drawing out anything. Uh, educate is a Socratic thing that assumes that this person already has smarts and we just have to draw, draw out for them. We have to teach them how to draw it out. We are actually doing, um, uh, what do you do when you have a baby, uh, to force a baby, um, um, you, you, you force the baby to come, I've just lost the word, in, in, uh, you induce. Induce, induce, induce. Yeah. Well, the Latin for induce means to fill up. We have an education system that fills people up. We tell people what to do. We and have... what to think and yes. what yes. steps to take. There's no asking going on. There's no Socratic method. It doesn't teach you to learn. It teaches you a bunch of facts. It fills you up. You know, I think, I think people who study writing, I, I studied... Um, copywriting in school. And so it, it forces you to create, if you're doing it right, I think, forces yeah. you to form opinions. And, and I think that that's probably the closest in the education system that you get to, to learning how to ask and seek and, and formulate versus regurgitate. I think there's a lot of regurgitating yeah. in our education system. Um, what's the benefit of having these stakeholders instead of employees. Yeah. So this is where the data gets to be fun. I had a, a, a two year, a year and a half long uh, discussion on Twitter with Tom, uh, Tom Peters, the author of In Search of Excellence, a big book from the 1990s, sold tens of millions of copies. He's a big management guru from uh, one of the big management firms. And he, he started the fight. I sound like Donald Trump now. Uh, he sent me a tweet and he said, uh, I, I wrote an article for Inc. Magazine about uh, people being on self-managed teams and that they're smart and motivated. They don't need managers. And he wrote back, he wrote a tweet to me and said, uh, if there are any airplanes created by self-management, let me know. I'm not getting on them. Every time someone wants to argue with me, they come at me emotionally. Every time I respond, I have data. Tom, the eight GE manufacturing plants for GE Aviation are all self-managed. There's not a single manager in any of them. They make 33% of all the airplane engines in the world. You are now going to have to take the bus from now on. 
they're not they're confusing process with managers yeah well and they they they're just assuming that management it's a function versus form argument mm-hmm. the function is people need to to understand what to do how to get it done all that stuff that's the function how do we get work done the form is implied they assume there's only one form that can can serve that function managers create that function well what if teams could create that function and gee what a surprise you end up with higher productivity higher retention higher profitability and faster growth every company that does this they're at the top of their fields in growth profitability uh, uh, production and most important retention Wegmans grocers 35% is the standard uh, the standard turnover in a uh, grocery 3.5% for decades at Wegmans because it's a participation age company. You put that in your bottom line and smoke it. I mean, that's going <laughs> to, that's going to change everything. And I can give you so many examples like that in, uh, with companies that are in, in, in uh, industries with 30 plus percent turnover and theirs is one or 2% a year. And then their productivity is higher and their profitability is higher. It's all higher. So even if you just want to make more money, even if you just have a utilitarian reason to do this, you should do it. It's a lousy reason to do it. The fact is you should do it because you want people to be human at work. What's the one thing that makes us uh, uh, adults, Grace? I studied this question. What makes us human, you know, awareness and creativity? The one thing that makes us adult more than any other thing, it's called this fancy thing called agency of responsibility. I, I was going to say responsibility. There it is. I wish I had one say, I should have cut you off and thrown it in. <laughs> well, what that really means is decision making. Mm-hmm. The ability to make decisions. I can put ice cream in my freezer at college and eat anytime I want. My mom's not around. What's the one thing you're not allowed to do at work? Make decisions. I grip people of all of their adulthood. So you want you want adults? You want stakeholders? Then give them back the ability to make decisions. I think so too. I think you know. I I meet a lot of adults by age that are not necessarily adults based on responsibility. <laughs> And you can spot these people by the excuses that they make for their lives. They don't want to take responsibility for where they are in life. And, and so that's how I identify an adult from, yeah. from a yeah. juvenile person is are, you're not here because of your parents. You're not here. You're not at this point because of what happened to you. The day you start taking responsibility for your life is the day you become an adult. Yeah. And I don't know. Grace, uh, every month for the, I don't know, last 10 or 15 years, every month Gallup does a survey asking the question, what percentage of people are engaged at work? Every month for 10 or 15 years, the same thing comes back. Somewhere between 28 and 32% of people at work are actually engaged. The other 70% are phoning it in. They're just doing whatever they have to between eight and five to get through the day without getting fired. If you had a machine that was working at 30%, would you just say, yeah, you know, well, that's the way it is. What are you going to do about it? No, you'd make sure that it got there. Well, I can show you companies. You want to know the difference between employee and stakeholder. I can show you companies where 100% are engaged. And, and whenever anybody isn't, they get pushed out. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's exciting. And I, I'll admit to the fact that I've had both. And you can actually turn it around pretty quickly. If you find yes. yourself in that situation, you can, you can bring someone in like yourself, um, especially if you're not comfortable doing it on your own. And you can diagnose what needs to change, and you can change pretty 
darn fast. I would say in 90 days, you can go from 30% productivity to 90% productivity. Before I was focusing with, uh, with dentists, we did a $300 million company in California and it took about 13 months to go from a fully top-down organization to a flat manageless structure and one manager quit. The rest of them uh, absorbed themselves back into this, the, the productive part of uh, work. So yeah, this can happen very quickly. The key is that the person who owns or the people who lead have got to buy off on this. If they don't, this is not something you say, hey, consultant, come in and fix my people. It mm-hmm. doesn't work that way. This is a cultural thing. Absolutely. And for anyone who's uh, too comfortable being a manager, unwilling to change, they're, they're going to be met with some unfortunate Unfortunate changes that happen. What happens usually is most people find out they'd actually rather be leaders or actually go back and be productive. They just don't enjoy what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Very seldom do do managers end up quitting in this environment. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Chuck, tell us a little bit about how you can help someone and, and then how, how if someone's interested in, in learning more from you, how they can get in touch with you. Appreciate that. We, uh, we work with dentists themselves and the owners to help the dentists and the owners and the founders of, of uh, practices get off the treadmill. Everybody comes in and says, we can increase your, your, your uh, revenue by 30%. That sounds like a nightmare to me because translation, I'm going to be 30% fast, busier than I was. And I'm already More stressed. What if you can increase your, uh, your income by 50% and work less? Doctor, I won't use his name, I'll, I'll say Dr. Green, he's in Chicago. And Dr. Green was uh, it's in, in his early 60s, had not saved enough for retirement, was working five days a week, uh, four days clinically and another day uh, office-wise, and uh, couldn't figure this thing out. And within uh, 13 months, he's now working two days a week. He makes another $75,000 more than he did before he was working when he was working five days a week. That's what we can do for dentists. And then for their teams, we can come in and, and continue that thing into their, their practice and help everybody figure out how to work more efficiently by distributed decision making and, and, and getting rid of that top-down structure and helping the manager become a leader. I love it. And how can someone get in touch with you, Chuck, if, if they'd like to learn more? Yeah, pretty simple. Uh, Chuck at cranksetgroup.com. We don't want to make this easy. Uh, you could also look at chuckblakeman.com, the, the, the website, but chuck at cranksetgroup.com or grow at cranksetgroup.com. Either one of those will get to somebody here. I'll, chuck will be me, grow, grow will go to Megan and a couple other people. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Chuck. I always learn so much from you. And I always feel like I owe you for a consulting session after I talk to you. So thanks again. And I'd love to have you back again in the future. Love to do it. Thanks, Grace. Keep going. Thank you.